I ask you please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. Continuing once again in the gospel according to Luke, it's actually the, well, it's the second last the second last passage in Luke. Uh, we were talking before about uh, whether you should all get some kind of prize or t-shirt or something like that for having, uh, for, for the, it's, uh, some of you have been almost two and a half years, back over two and a half years since we've actually started. So um, I'm excited, um, but I'm, I'm sad as well. Um, but this morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 49. Luke 24, 36 to 49. As they're talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then it said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Let's bow together to our Lord in prayer. Almighty God, as we behold the risen Christ in the Scriptures, I pray that you will open all of our eyes to understand the scriptures, to behold the risen Christ with the eyes of faith, and that for each of us, the reality of the resurrection would be more real to us even than if we had seen it with physical eyes. Almighty God, help me to bear witness of the risen Christ Father God, I cannot do this apart from your empowering spirit. None of us can comprehend these things, let alone embrace these things, unless your spirit works in our hearts. So we pray that you would help us all to witness the risen Christ and to bear witness for the risen Christ. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Several years ago, Jane and I were traveling through Australia and a TED Talk came up on the car radio. And if you've ever, ever listened to, uh, to TED Talks, they, they range in, in topics and, and some of them we would, we would disagree with vehemently, but, but some of them are, are actually really fascinating. And, and, and this one was, was particularly engaging. The, the speaker in this TED Talk was named Scott Fraser. He's a, a forensic psychologist. And if you don't understand what that is, a forensic psychologist is a, is a, a courtroom psychologist. And he was talking about how eyewitnesses quite often remember crimes wrongly. 
And according to his theory of cognitive psychology, he said that, that we encode uh, bits of, and, of, and pieces of events in our brain, and our brain then somehow puts these, these things together to form memories. But he says that the problem is that quite often the brain puts these, these bits of, of information together wrongly to create inaccurate memories. And he concludes, he says that this is because the brain, uh, he says, abhors a vacuum. And so where there's, there's missing pieces, he says that our brain fills in the gaps. And says that, that so that the false memories, he says, are constructed through inference and speculation and extraneous information and other things like that. But now from, from a biblical perspective, we would say that these false memories are one of the effects of the fall of humanity into sin. Fallen men and fallen women have fallen minds. And so not only because of the fall are our minds imperfect, and so we remember events imperfectly, but more than that, our sinful biases often lead us to false conclusions. Just think about it in a, in a marriage or, or another close friendship. You have a, a disagreement with a person, like, like the color of a shirt. Maybe it's a sharp disagreement about something that's happened. Now you both experience exactly the same thing, but you have very different opinions as to what really happened. Has that ever happened in your marriage, in your friendships? We each have very different opinions, sometimes starkly different opinions as to what's happened. But we need to understand that, that in everything that takes place, there are not just two witnesses. There are actually three witnesses. You have an opinion. The person you are debating or arguing with has an opinion. But God also has a perspective on these events. And it is God's testimony that is the valid one. It is God's testimony that is the accurate one. So, so whose testimony are you going to believe? Believe God's testimony. Go with God's testimony. But we've seen repeatedly how the apostles failed to do that with response to Jesus Christ. After three years of ministry among them, after he had taught before them specifically so many things about his person and his work, if they'd seen him do powerful miracles one after another, even raising somebody from the dead. One of them betrayed him. Another one denied him. And they all deserted them. They did not understand the crucifixion and they were slow to believe in his resurrection. Again, even though he clearly and repeatedly and specifically taught them exactly what was going to happen. Well, as we approach the end of the gospel, according to Luke, with Luke 24, 39 to 46, sorry, 36 to 49, Luke is wrapping up part one of his two-volume series. We're witnessing the culmination of Jesus' earthly ministry as he appears to the apostles one last time and teaches them about his suffering and about his resurrection. What Jesus has been prophesying, prophesying to them has been fulfilled. He had told them repeatedly that he must suffer and die in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. 
And all of that has happened in fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. The disciples were well aware of his death. But Jesus had also been raised from the dead. The two disciples along the Emmaus Road had had borne witness to this fact. Peter had borne witness. But the apostles are not yet convinced. And this final meeting is going to change that. So Jesus has prophesied of his suffering. He has prophesied of his death. But he's about to make yet another prophecy. One that is also fulfilled in the Old Testament scriptures. The prophecy that repentance for the forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in all nations first in Jerusalem. And this prophecy is yet to be fulfilled as we reach the end of Luke. We've seen the fulfillment, uh, uh, we've seen the fulfillment of Christ's ministry in Luke, in Luke 1, but now in, in the book of Acts, Luke 2, we're going, to see, we're going to see the fulfillment of this as the disciples go out in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, starting in Jerusalem and then into the nations. Luke volume 2. Jesus is about to depart. But in order for the gospel of Jesus Christ to spread, it is necessary that the gospel be entrusted to faithful men. But still at this point, when we arrive in this passage, these men did not look very faithful. They don't look like faithful witnesses. They need help. They need serious help. They need divine help. And they're about to get this help. As witnesses of the risen Christ, the apostles are called to be witnesses for the risen Christ. They're about to be commissioned by Christ himself as witnesses of him. Jesus demonstrates yet again that the scriptures teach that he would suffer and be resurrected and that the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name would go out to all nations. God's plan for Christ, God's plan through Christ, must be fulfilled. Yet the first two have happened. Jesus has died and Jesus has been raised. But one yet remains for the apostles to carry out. So in Acts, we'll see the story continue. I see two key points in this passage this morning. The apostles were witnesses of the risen Christ in verses 36 to 43. And the apostles will be witnesses for the risen Christ in verses 44 to 49. So first of all, verses 36 to 43, the apostles were witnesses of the risen Christ. Verse 36 picks up where verse 35 left off. It's still the third day after the crucifixion of Christ. This is the evening of resurrection day, the first Lord's day. The apostles and those who were with them were talking about what had just happened. They they were talking about Jesus' appearance to Peter. They were talking about the testimony of the two disciples who had been on the road to Emmaus and had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And as they were were on the road, Jesus had had taught to them the Old Testament scriptures and what they have to say about him. And then they invited him to stay with them. And so over dinner, as Jesus blessed the food and gave it to them, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then Jesus immediately vanished from the sight. And so they, they took off running back to Jerusalem to tell the 11 what had happened. Friends, there's no talking about the weather or fishing stories after witnessing 
the risen Christ. But now as they were talking, here in verse 36, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Now this event here is paralleled in John 20, verses 19 to 23. John adds the, the detail that the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. So then despite the locked door, Jesus suddenly appears in the midst of them. Clearly, locked doors are no problem for the risen Christ. His resurrection body is not bound by physical limitations. We've seen in Emmaus how he disappeared, and now he suddenly appears. And his benediction, his blessing, peace to you, or shalom, is a normal greeting in Jewish culture. It, it still is. But this is no normal moment. This is no normal peace. These apostles have no personal right to peace before Christ. They had all fled. They had all disbelieved. But here, Jesus offers them the peace that can only come through him. In Luke 1.79, Zechariah prophesied that his son, John the Baptist, would guide his people's feet in the way of peace. Jesus is that way of peace. At Jesus' birth in Luke 2.14, the angelic host praised God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is not just peace between people, but peace between people and God. This peace was purchased through the suffering of Jesus Christ that he has just experienced in their place. God made war with his son so that he could make peace with us. But the apostles have not yet experienced the benefit of that peace because they did not yet understand the presence of the one who offered that peace. They were startled. They were frightened. They, they thought they'd seen a spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I would probably be jumpy if I was in a locked room and someone suddenly appeared right next to me. But again, these men had the testimony of Peter. They had the testimony of these two disciples on the road. This is the third appearance of Jesus, of the risen Christ that is recorded in Luke. John records an earlier appearance to Mary Magdalene as well. But this is revealing that the disciples were still not expecting to see Jesus for themselves. They're not expecting a miracle. And never one to ignore the awkward issues, Jesus deals directly with their unspoken anxiety that arises from doubting hearts, asking them, why are you troubled? And why are doubts arising in your hearts? Now, when Jesus asks this question, he's not looking for an answer. It's rhetorical. He knows the answer. Again, the disciples are portrayed as slow to believe, slow to believe the fact of the resurrection. Again, they do not experience, expect Jesus to be raised or to appear among them. They need to be persuaded. But more than persuasion, they need to be radically changed. They need to be radically changed in heart and mind and action. They need a new attitude, they need new understanding, and they need new behavior. But despite all that, despite their failings, Jesus is showing them that they have no reason to fear. They have no reason to doubt. So Jesus says to them in verse 39, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. 
He's saying, look at, look at my hands. Look at my feet. It is I myself. It's really me. I'm not just a spirit. I have truly risen from the grave. And so Jesus now engages their senses. He says, he says, look at me with your eyes. Touch me with your hands. Look at my hands and my feet that bear, that bear the scars of the wounds that were inflicted upon me as I suffered for your sins. And even as Jesus ascended to heaven, even now in, in glory, he still bears these scars. And when he returns, he will still bear these scars. I'm reminded of the song by Michael Card. And after they had slain him and laid him in the grave, and the ones he loved had fled into the dark. Then his love and power raised him. God won the victory, but they only recognized him by the scars. The marks of death that God chose never to erase. The wounds of love's eternal war. When the kingdom comes with his perfected sons, he'll be known by the scars. Jesus was right there in front of them. But Luke tells us that the disciples disbelieved for joy. And it seems like an, an oxymoron. Disbelief and joy don't fit together, do they? Luke is saying that for the disciples, this was too good to be true. They couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that Jesus was truly alive. Now we'll see next week, Lord willing, that they will experience great joy, joy that is not hindered by unbelief. But for that to happen, something else has to happen. Seeing and touching Jesus isn't enough. Before they could be convinced, their hearts need to be convinced. Before they can be witnesses of the risen Christ, the apostles need to be transformed by the renewal of their minds. Romans 12, 2. Brothers and sisters, we have not seen the risen Christ or touched him personally, but we are witnesses of the risen Christ. Our minds have been transformed and are continually being renewed. So we behold the risen Christ with the eyes of faith. We haven't touched him personally, but we have been touched by him personally. The apostles are about to have their minds opened. Verses 44 to 49. The apostles will be witnesses for the risen Christ. Jesus now said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Once again, Luke is telling us about the fulfillment of Scripture. This is, this is a major theme in his gospel account. God uses the plans of wicked men to kill Jesus in order to achieve his sovereign plan to save his people. The scriptures teach God's sovereignty and the scriptures teach man's responsibility. An apparent paradox to us, but the scriptures teach both and so we embrace both. This apparent paradox bears witness to God's wisdom and to God's power. Luke twenty-two twenty-two, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. 
As the believers pray for, for boldness in Acts chapter 4, saying, Sovereign Lord, who, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, truly in the city that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Acts 4, 27 and 28. The scriptures must be fulfilled. Christ's suffering is necessary for our salvation. Guilt must be punished or God is not just. So God punishes our sin through His Son and that is His plan. It has been His plan since eternity past. Now Jesus had spoken about His suffering and His death repeatedly while He was still with them and He did so again and again. We saw it directly in in Luke 9, 22 and 44 and 17, 25 and 18, 31 to 33 and 22, 37. Jesus has just done so again in verses 26 and 27 on the road to Emmaus. Saying, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He's done this again and again and again and again. But at that sermon on the road to Emmaus, the hearts of the two disciples had burned. Now Jesus does the same thing to open the minds of the apostles. He says that it is necessary that everything written about him in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. By speaking here of, of this, this division, the threefold division of the Law of Moses and the, and the Prophets and the Psalms, Jesus is speaking here of the, the three divisions of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. It, it's, it refers to the whole of the Old Testament. He's saying that the entire Old Testament bears witness of him and what he came to do. Now, Jesus here does not mention specific texts, though it makes me think of, of the ram and the thicket. In, it was a substitute for, uh, for Isaac in Genesis 22. That's, that's in the, the book of Moses, in Genesis. Or the piercing of his hands and his feet in Psalm 22. Or our iniquity being laid on the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. But specific texts here aren't the point. The point is that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ and what he came to do. That he would suffer to the point of death for the sins of his people and that he'd be resurrected for their justification. That's the whole Old Testament. The scriptures must be fulfilled. Not only was his death and resurrection necessary for your salvation, but it is a divine necessity. God's will will be fulfilled. So now Jesus opens their minds to understand the, understand the scriptures. Now this isn't the, the filling of the Spirit that will take place on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. However, I believe it is related to Jesus saying, receive the Holy Spirit from John 20, 22, the parallel passage. Jesus is revealing to them the true meaning of the prophetic message of the Old Testament. But notice that Jesus is saying specifically that he is the one who will do this. We need to understand as the, the, the apostles have just seen Jesus. But seeing isn't believing. 
Seeing isn't believing. Many people see, but don't believe. I've had several people in the context of evangelism saying to me, well, if Jesus was to appear right in front of me, then I would believe. Well, no, they wouldn't. Because they would, they would think of some rational explanation in their minds that would explain away the presence of Christ before them. Romans 10, 17. Faith does not come through, through seeing, but through hearing. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The mind of man is darkened by sin. We cannot perceive or believe without God's sovereign grace. And so Jesus here enables these apostles not just to, to see, but to receive and to believe. This is a work of God as Jesus Christ opens their minds to understand. 1 Corinthians 2.14 the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolish to him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. A person left to their own devices will never come to the, the conclusions of the reality of, of who Christ is and what he came to do and the personal application of that to themselves. They might be able to identify the bare facts, but to personally believe, to, to not just believe the, the, the doctrine, but to place their faith in Christ takes a work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of sinful men and women. Again, many people can understand the facts of the scriptures, but in order to understand their significance personally, it's a gift of God's sovereign grace. Another person was, was brought to my attention just this morning. The, the, women, the woman who did the flowers at our wedding who by her testimony is rejecting God and his word. Yet another person in a, in a whole list, Jane and I were talking, I, I mean, I felt sick in my stomach when I heard about this. And Jane and I were talking, there's a whole host of people in our past. We, we have many, many friends who have remained faithful, but I can also list several who have, have fallen away. It's horrible. Now she could, this woman could attest to all the facts, the gospel. But at least right now, she does not believe. She does not believe the gospel. She does not believe in Christ. There are even biblical scholars who can explain the scriptures accurately, but don't know Jesus personally. The question for each one of us is, 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 has Jesus opened your mind to understand the scriptures? Now, I don't know how many times I've heard people say that Christians don't have open minds. But according to the scriptures, the reality is that Christians are the only ones who actually have open minds. Jesus says in verse 46, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and the third day rise from the dead. Again, Jesus repeats the necessity of his suffering and of his resurrection as he had again earlier in this chapter. The scriptures must be fulfilled. And notice here that Jesus is speaking again of three things that must be fulfilled. First is death. The disciples could obviously attest to the fact that he had died. There's no question about that in their minds. The second is his resurrection. And they had finally had their minds opened to the reality of the resurrection. 
But there's a third thing, thing that Jesus is prophesying here that is yet to be fulfilled. Verse 47, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. In light of the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, attestation and proclamation was now their mission. The scriptures reveal the necessity of this fact as well. And so the apostles, which means to be sent out, the apostles are sent out according to God's sovereign plan for evangelism in the name of Jesus to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. This is the gospel that they are called and commanded to proclaim. There's repentance. Repentance, I've said so many times, is a, a change of heart that leads to a change in behavior. A change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. It's, it's a move away, not just from, from particular sins, but from a, a whole life that is bent on sin and selfishness and is now reoriented towards God. Not perfectly. That's why we continue to repent. But we've had a radical change. That's repentance. It takes place in the heart and it leads to a change in behavior. And then forgiveness for those who repent. Now, forgiveness is, is not dependent upon perfect repentance. Thank God or nobody would be in heaven. Forgiveness is, is, is predicated only upon the finished work of Christ, faith in Him. Forgiveness means to, to put away. The sin is put away. It is separated from you as far as the east is from the west. When I was first saved, I had a, a, a litany of, of things that I felt horribly guilty for. For 23 years, I, I lived in the pursuit of, of self and sin. And to, to the, the best I could of the power of the Spirit, I, I repented of those things. But, but as, I, as I grew in the knowledge of Christ, I realized that I'm actually far more sinful than I realized. So by God's grace, I continue to repent. And I continue to experience the fullness of the forgiveness that I have received in Christ Jesus for all that he has done as he was punished in my place on the cross. Have you experienced that? Have you repented of your sin? Is your faith in Jesus Christ? If it isn't, what's holding you back? What's holding you back from, from surrendering your life to him? And trusting him, would you rather trust in yourself and in righteousness before stand, when you stand before God on the day of judgment? Would you rather trust and stand in Christ? This message, this message of, of repentance and faithfulness, or and forgiveness rather, is to be proclaimed to all nations. To all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Th this salvation is not just a Jewish thing. It's to all nations, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. It, it, it thrills me to see our, our church growing in diversity. It's, it's, it's not that, it's not that we're, we're, we're targeting diversity, but we celebrate diversity because it's a picture of the redemption that, that God has accomplished for, for people from every tribe and tongue and nation. As we, and we anticipate the day when, when people are going to gather, people from, from every nation on earth are going to gather together before the throne of God and celebrate, praise God, worshiping Him together. And we get to see a foretaste of that now. It's glorious. I love to see this grow 
for the glory of God. Luke and Acts emphasize that the mission is both to Jew and Gentile. So it's to the Jews and everyone else. And I, I think for sort of people in the I think we are, all of us, the everyone else. We're all Gentiles here. We've been grafted in to the vine of, of the Jews through Jesus Christ, the archetypical Jew. Remember, this, this gospel account, Luke's gospel account, was written to Theophilus, a, a Gentile. His name means God-lover. And it's written to all Gentiles who follow in the footsteps of faith. And so the Jews also need a reminder that this gospel is for everyone. They, they had ignored that or forgotten about it way back in the past. They need to be reminded that it's for all people. And this salvation is, notice, it's in his name. There is no other name given on heaven whereby men and women can be saved. It is only in the name of Christ. Salvation does not come through adherence to an abstract set of theological principles. Salvation comes through a person. Luke here is speaking about what Christ has done for people and what is available through Christ. These men aren't called to simply teach doctrine. Friends, doctrine can't save you. It's easy to have right doctrine. You just need to read the right books and listen to the right preachers. Plenty of people have good doctrine but are headed to hell. Now don't get me wrong. Doctrine is important. Doctrine is vitally important. As a church, we strive to hold to biblical doctrine, the whole counsel of God's word, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And wrong doctrine can mean that you have the wrong Jesus. It can mean that your God is not the God of the Bible. This passage before us this morning is full of doctrine. Every passage is full of doctrine. And the closer you get to right doctrine, the closer you get to who Jesus really is. But doctrine is not an end unto itself. Doctor is meant to teach us who Jesus Christ is so that we can worship him for who he really is, that we can worship him in spirit and in truth. These men are not called to simply proclaim doctrine. They are called to proclaim a person. They're not called to be university professors. They're called to be witnesses, though I do know many university professors who are witnesses as well, including one sitting right here. The disciples and subsequently the church have been predestined to proclaim God's call to repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about the fact that you have been predestined to evangelism? This is part of the, the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to walk in, in Ephesians 2.10. Have you repented? Have you been forgiven? Have you told the unbelievers in your life that they must also repent and be forgiven? Do you live your life consciously as a Christian so that others will, will ask of you for the reason of the hope that you have within you? Are you looking for opportunities in your engagements with others to testify, to bear witness of who Christ is and all he has come to do? You've been predestined to do that. 
You're not left on your own to, to try to, to muddle through. This is God's plan for you. So as we taught in the, in the model prayer, to, play, to pray, your will be done, is to, to ask God that, that he would work in you and through you. When you, you pray, your kingdom come, you're asking that he would help you to advance the gospel through your life and your testimony of who Christ really is. Jesus says to the disciples, you are witnesses to the, of these things. The disciples can testify the, to these things as faithful eyewitnesses. Acts 5, 31 and 32, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So the the apostles are witnesses, and you and I are witnesses. This is the Great Commission. This, this is the Great Commission. This is, this is tied to, to Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. And we're familiar with this, I, I hope. The Great Commission, that... that Well, I'll go back to verse 18. All Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, because of his authority, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is not just for apostles. This is for Christians. This is for all of those who have repented and found forgiveness in the name of Christ. But Luke finishes his gospel account before we see the fulfillment of this. We, we very clearly see the fulfillment of the, the suffering and the death of Christ, but Luke finishes here at the end of, of this gospel account. Of, again, spoiler warning, verses 50 to 53. It's not there. So we have to continue. In Luke 2, we have to continue in the book of Acts. This is like a teaser trailer for Acts. How are the disciples going to do what they're called to do? They've had their, their minds open to God's plan and God's purpose, and they're about to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So if the gospel according to, to Luke is centered on the work of Christ. Acts is centered on the work of the Holy Spirit to direct people to the work of Christ. Jesus tells them in, in verse 49, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now back in Luke chapter 9, 1 and 2, Jesus had sent the apostles and, and the, the 70 out with with power and authority to proclaim the kingdom of God and, and, and to heal. This was a temporary filling of the Spirit for a specific mission. But Jesus here in Luke 24 is promising something different. He's promising something much better. He's speaking of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for all believers. Now Jesus speaks quite a bit about this in the, the upper room discourse in John's gospel account, that the spirit that is is poured out on the, the sorry that, that the spirit has been poured on you that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, 
whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The disciples are not to, to engage in the task of evangelism in their own weak strength. Right? We've seen repeatedly that, 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 they are, that they are bad witnesses. They need help. That's what Jesus says to wait, to tarry in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage if I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, it's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so Jesus says here that he's going to send the promise of, of my Father. My Father. He's, he's speaking of, of God the Father in the most intimate of terms. And notice here he says, the Holy, the, the, this promise, I will send saying, I will send the Holy Spirit. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. This is a little history lesson here. This is called the Philoque Clause of the Nicene Creed. Right? If you want to read the Nicene Creed, and you should, you should, should know it. It's an excellent summation of Trinitarian doctrine. It's, it's on our church website. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and from the Son. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And is this, it is the and the Son part. That, that word philokate means, it means and the Son. And this is what led to the schism between the Eastern and Western church. The Eastern Orthodox churches rejected that the Holy Spirit had been sent from the Son. We've just seen several passages that so, show that the Holy Spirit is indeed sent from the Son and from the Father. So the Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus. Jesus provides an intermediary role. And we'll, we'll see this in the sending of the Spirit, the fulfillment of this it, at Pentecost in, in Acts 2.33. We'll see it again also before we get there in Acts 1.8. The same promise, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. That is fulfilled on Pentecost. Jesus says you will be clothed in power. Now that, that frequently means being clothed in something, frequently refers to just something that we don't naturally possess. Something that has been put on us or given to us by God. And this is where the enablement, enablement for the apostles and for all believers comes through the indwelling power from, of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus sends upon all his people. It is the power provided by the Spirit that enables the apostles' witness, enables them to faithfully and boldly bear witness to Jesus Christ. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that enables you to faithfully bear witness and boldly bear witness to Jesus Christ. But again, these apostles didn't start out faithful. Neither have we. We can all testify. I can testify where out of, of times out of fear of man that, that I didn't see anything when I knew I should. But praise God that, that through the, the work of the sanctification of the Spirit, those times are, are fewer and farther between. I, I trust that you can testify to the same thing. But where your weakness is, 
Don't rely on your strength. Rely on God's strength. You have received this promised spirit. You at, at this time here at the, the end of Luke 24, the, the apostles don't yet, haven't yet, not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit. You have been filled by the Holy Spirit. Every Christian after Pentecost has been filled by the Holy Spirit. So take heart. If you've not been faithful to discharge this duty, consider the example of these faithful men. And I'm excited to preach through Acts when we see the changes. Like immediately. Not perfectly, but you see radical change in his men through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this will, will I trust by God's grace, will spur us on to follow in their footsteps of faith, in their faithfulness to bear witness of Jesus Christ. But we confess, as with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So this first Lord's Day gathering is really paradigmatic of the Lord's Day services that have taken place every day in the church ever since. This was like the, the first Lord's Day gathering of the church. And ever since then, the church has gathered on the Lord's Day. We are gathered together on the Lord's Day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. So we gather together to encounter the risen Christ. And then we get sent out to bear witness of the risen Christ. Let's pray. Our great and glorious God, we wonder at the privilege of bearing witness to Christ as we behold Christ with the eyes of faith, of having the privilege to bear witness for the risen Christ, to tell others who he is and all that he has done to proclaim the name of Christ. Almighty God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to be faithful witnesses. Help us, Lord, to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies in us. Help us, Lord, to go through life, not passively, but actively seeking opportunities to testify to who to who Christ is and all that he has done so that through us, weak though we are, the power of the gospel might be evidenced through us for your glory and for the building of your church. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.